the flying that I got into being like backcountry flying. Um, I was having a lot of fun just flying the plane and finding new places to land that like maybe no one's ever landed at before. And a lot of those, it's like, if you can land near a river or a lake, it's just like super cool. And then, Hey, we can set up and camp here. But a friend of mine did know how to fly fish. Well, two of them that I was with did. So they set me up, kind of taught me how I'm flailing. And I somehow caught like a little tiny trout, but that was it. And then I came home and I was kind of like, okay, for one, I look like a flailing idiot in the video <laughs> trying to do it. So I'd like to at least look a little more composed and have an understanding. But, um, then I was kind of like, I also want to like actually catch a fish and figure out why people are so into this. Welcome back, guys, to the podcast. We've got my boy Trent Palmer here, and we're about to jump into the conversation, but I first want to let you guys know that we just released our summer merch line. This is the first merch line we've released since August of last year, and it's been well in the works. I'm really, really excited about it. We've got some awesome new sun hoodies, some new hats, tees, and a bunch of other little stuff. And for this merch line, if you are listening to this and you buy something in the first week, if you buy $50 worth of gear in the first week that is live, you're going to get a chance to come to Alaska with us this coming September. All-inclusive trip. You're going to be a part of the film. You're going to get to hang out with us for a whole week up at Alaska with Bob and the whole crew, and it's going to be a heck of a time. So go check that out. Trent's been able to see some of the gear this week. Yeah, you're wearing it, but you didn't bring me any. <laughs> Dude, I told you we're working on it. This is this will come out after once we have all inventory. I just have samples right now. Uh-huh. Um, so unfortunately, uh, whatever, man. I yeah, get it. yeah, I know it's a bummer. We'll, we'll send you a whole though. care package. Yeah, unless everyone buys it too it. quick. Dude, save one, just one sun hoodie. We'll save one sun hoodie okay. for you. Okay. Um, but yeah, guys, go check that out. Again, we always appreciate it. That is what supports this podcast, our films, and everything we do. Um, we couldn't do any of this without all y'all's support with the merch line. So, yeah, we're stoked about it, and let's jump into the conversation. How'd that sound? It sounded good to me, dude. Sweet. Yeah. Awesome, dude. Um, sweet. Well, we are here in Reno, Nevada, somewhere near Reno, Nevada, sitting on your back porch here, looking out. Kind of in the Sierras, kind of in the the desert. Yeah. And uh, yeah, to introduce you a little bit, you um, you and I are both YouTube creators that we connected uh, a few months back. I remember seeing that you were doing some fly fishing. Yeah. Along with your uh, flight and all your all your flying, um, you have a bush plane. You've been flying planes for what eight ten years, and then been flying drones before that. We're gonna dive into all of it. Um, but that's kind of how we first met. And so this week we've been here doing a little collab project, working on some videos, doing some fishing, yeah. some flying in your plane. Yeah. You even let me fly the yeah. plane. Couldn't believe it. Oh yeah. <laughs> but let's go back a little bit to like how you became a pilot, how you first started this world of like flying. Cause I think it goes even further back than just, uh, just planes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And actually to go even farther back, what, you know, landed me here in the YouTube space, creator spaces, you know, ever since I was in high school, I was, a uh, I was making videos uh, first of my friends screwing, screwing around, you know, in the backyard and then dirt bikes and then skiing. I had a lot of friends that were like on their way to being the next like top names in skiing. So I was the kid that picked up a camera and said, I'm going to film this. 
And then from there, that segued into me working in the film industry. My first professional job was as an editor. And while I was doing that, I was really into flying RC. And I built out a remote control helicopter that had a camera on the front. And I showed it to Jerry, who was my boss, a director at the time. And he was like, oh, man. He's like, you're not, you know, pretty soon I'm going inter- to introduce you to some people and you'll be, you know, on your own in the film industry. And that's essentially what happened. So uh, that was early 2010. I started my company, Copter Kids. And uh, in 2014, there, it was actually a, a 2012 Remodernization Act at the FAA. But in 2014, they started enforcing the fact that anyone flying commercially with a UAV, a drone, unmanned, had to have a manned pilot's license. And at the time I was terrified of flying, terrified of heights. I wanted nothing to do with being in an airplane, but I had to do it for my job or, or find a new job, you know? So basically I was forced into getting my pilot's license and about halfway through something clicked and I went from just being absolutely terrified to like, as long as I was like in control, I was kind of okay with it. And then by the end of my training at around 40 hours when I was ready for my check ride, which is like your test to get your license. Um, I was like, okay, what, what plane am I getting? <laughs> so it was a weird roundabout way that it was like being into film and video got me into flying, you know, remote control helis and drones in the film industry, which led to me getting my pilot's license. Yeah. And then after I got that, I started, you know, just having a friend come out and chase me around with a drone or, or film some takeoffs and landings. And I'd post it on YouTube and, uh, you know, I posted a few of those. They were just for fun. And then I kind of realized like, man, if I wanted to do the YouTube thing, I think there might be a hunger for like vlog style videos, like ride along, come along on the adventure thing. Yeah. And that's what made me start doing like actual consistent YouTube content. Yeah. Oh, it's so cool. And going back even to like the RC time, time frame, cause you said like 2010, right? Yeah. That's when you were kind of starting to get into it. That was way before drones were accessible like they are today. Yeah. And so, to put reference to it, we hated the name drone. Like when people would mention a drone, like we're like, no, that's what the military flies to bomb people. Like it had a negative connotation. So that's why it was like, we were the copter, like the, the bring the mini copter or whatever we were calling it. Cause it was truly a single rotor RC helicopter that we were flying six foot rotor span, like basically a flying guillotine with no guard or flying lawnmower with no guard. It was like the thing would cut you in half. The tip speed on the rotor blades was 250 miles per hour. <laughs> and they are literally like machetes flying through the air. Yeah. And I, yeah, that what made me, I was really resistive to the multi-rotor movement, which is what we think of as drones, you know, a whole bunch of uh, motors spinning individual pr- propellers. That's a multi-rotor, like as far as what ca- kind of flying platform it is. Compared to a single one. Like single rotor. Yeah. And uh, I was super resistive to switching and I was on a shoot with my big setup flying my red and I was uh, filming a snowboard um, film and I was over the athletes, over photo- photographers and all that. And I lost link between my radio and the helicopter for just like a split second. But my heart like stopped. I was like thinking in the moment, I'm like, that's the stuff that puts me in jail for manslaughter. Like, it's just at this point, it's not worth it. Right. Cause there was, there was no, no auto level function, no GPS hold, no nothing. Like you had to manually hover the, the aircraft. Like it was like balancing a broomstick in your hand just to hover. So it was never like, you couldn't look away from it for a split second. Yeah. It was crazy. So that was like oh the gosh. wild west of, of the inception of the, what we call kind of the drone world now. But 
And yeah, back then it was funny. I think there was probably like six of us, six companies in the nation doing it in the film industry. And of them, I probably was the only one that had any film experience. So cool. Yeah, that's what was, we kind of jumped into it. There were people doing it before me, but we were pretty quickly kind of like the guys for a run there in Hollywood, which was fun. So yeah, you, you say, you know, Hollywood and you guys are, you have copter kids, this, this company that you start when you were 20, right? Or something like that. How, how do you go from, you know, flying RC planes and helicopters to then working in Hollywood? Yeah. Like how, what, what's the, how does that happen? And like, how quick of a span does that happen? Well, you got to think I, I, you know, I'd been doing video stuff and had my own production company. Like I would make full length ski films. Okay. So I, I knew how to shoot. I knew how to edit. I knew how to do all that stuff. And I got hired professionally as an editor. Um, and under that same company, FLF films, I was fortunate enough to be able to get brought on set to be like camera assistant. If we were doing really small stuff, he'd have me run sound or be a grip. Like Jerry was really great at like letting me play each role. So I'd, I'd had a decent amount of set time prior to doing copter kids. And the initial stuff we were shooting was like, we did a lot of off-road racing series. So, I mean, it was for a discovery network. So it was still like, I mean, large production, there's still probably 50 people on the crew, but it wasn't like, you know, a Warner brothers type feature, at least for the first like year or two. I think our first actual feature film was, um, 2012, uh, gangster squad. Did you ever see that? I didn't. Yeah, it was Ruben Fletcher, the director of Zombieland. Okay. In 30 minutes or less. I think, uh, who was in it? Ryan Gosling and Gerard Butler or something. Maybe that was the nice guys. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you did the film. nice guys as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've done a few, but that was the first one. I like, I had to fly my single rotor helicopter, like two feet over Gerard Butler's head. Oh my God. No, hold on. I'm backwards. This was uh, Josh Brolin and Ryan Gosling. So Josh Brolin's who I flew over and it was just the last scene of the whole movie. Last shot. So they like brought us in, paid our whole day rate. We showed up. I think I flew two batteries. So like 10 minutes of flying. And then I was like, all right, (laughs) see you guys. You're wrapped. (laughs) (laughs) That was the nice part about movies. Yeah. A lot of times it's like you have one scripted shot. You come in, nail it and then leave. It's fun. Yeah. And that's so different from what you and I do with YouTube where not only are we, is it not only is it usually a, a one man crew or two man crew, like a very small crew, but you're also working with real it's like it's like documentary type of type of filming where you're you're documenting what is happening and it's not as scripted like we obviously this the past couple days we've been fishing we've been flying you know we can plan out as much as we want but at the end of the day you're relying on a fish or you're relying on something with the plane to to happen to to tell a story you know versus like coming up with a big script and having storyboards and stuff yeah so what was that uh transition then from going working as with copter kids and then you know starting the youtube channel when did that kind of start out and you wanted to to create more youtube content yeah you know what's funny i mean like deep down i love making films i'm a filmmaker and what started me with building my first rc helicopter with a camera on the front was i was still doing ski films and I always wanted to film from a helicopter, like be the guy that could hang out the side of the helicopter. Even though I was terrified of it, it was like, this is worth risking my life for. Cause that's like <laughs> what all the cool guys do. I couldn't afford that. So I had to build an RC helicopter. After I built that, 
I was the only guy that I trusted flying it. And like of all the group of people I flew with, they weren't as good as me at flying the RC helicopter. And pretty quickly I realized like I can't fly and aim the camera at the same time. So built a gimbal for it, brought in someone else, which all of a sudden now I'm just driving the, the helicopter in the sky and then I've got someone else aiming camera. And then the more things have progressed, it's like, I, you know, again, we've worked with really big directors on really big shoots. And I want to say I am part of the filmmaking process, but at the end of the day, I'm just the drone driver. Like I'm looking at the thing in the sky. I might reference video, but I don't have any creative say. I'm not telling a story. I'm not really filmmaking. So I think that hunger to be a filmmaker and actually tell my own stories is what led me to the YouTube thing. Cause it's like, I actually had control. I could actually, you know, be a part of the whole process again, instead of just being the guy that shows up, flies a drone and leaves. So yeah, that was the driving force. And then I think I saw a little bit of when I was getting into flying, um, I'd go on YouTube and want to see some flying content and I, you know, I'd watch some stuff, but I was really underwhelmed with, you know, like, dude, flying is really cool. It's really fun. And the videos don't really show that properly. So it was like, I need to, you know, put some better content out there for anyone that's up and coming and getting their pilot's license or wanting to like, they need to understand how fun and, and exciting this is mm -hmm. as opposed to the other videos that were all about like, let's talk about how to file a flight plan yeah. and how to get a clearance with ATC. It's like, I don't care about that. <laughs> like, Dude, that's so funny. It's the same in the fly fishing, fishing world. When I was first getting into it, there was, there was like some fly fishing films out there, but most of them were over a paywall and there was not much on YouTube that was like the boys just going out fishing and having fun. Yeah. It was, you know, educational, like really stale, slow videos, low quality. Dude, they're so bad. Yeah. It reminds me of like local public access, like networks. Yeah. You know, you're like brought to you by your local PBS. It's like today we're fishing for yeah. this <laughs> fish. It's brought to you by, and like, it's like, oh my yeah. God, you already lost me. <laughs> and so, yeah, when, when I was first getting into fly fishing, one of my buddies was like, you got to check out wild fly productions. And I no clicked way. on one of your videos. I was like, dude, this is legit. And I probably binged like five of your videos right in a row. I was like super sick. Cause I told you like the fly fishing bug caught me like quick. Hit you hard. I think you can tell with me, I'm like all or nothing kind of guy. And so if I dive into it, I'm into it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I mean, I, dude, you've only been fishing for two years, fly fishing for two years, which yeah. is like blew my mind this week. I know plenty of people who've been fishing way longer than you that are not nearly as, as, keyed in and like understanding of the sport and understanding of water and trout and everything. So yeah, it's really impressive. But I think one of the things you were telling me this week was you have, like you said, obviously you're all in on something, but you had a lot of time to like, you put a lot of time into it. Yeah. On the, you're off time. Yeah. I and, think that's just the nature of like how I am. Like I, I, I borderline obsess about things cause I really hate like feeling like you're doing something, but you like don't know what you're doing. And I felt like that pretty big time at the start of fly fishing. Yeah. And I think there's also some kind of stigma with fly fishing that it, it they make it seem like you, you really got to know what you're doing. You got to like be on top of it. You got to have a good cast. You got to be all dialed and all this stuff. And the more I've gotten into it, the more I've realized that's not the case. The more you've watched wildfly videos, you're like, oh yeah, I'm good. <laughs> no, you, dude, you're good at what you do. Like I've been impressed with your casting. If anything, I'm like, oh crap. Now I'm going to look really bad next to Scotty. <laughs> no way, and dude. then Jay picks up my rod and just lays it out. Like I'm like, Dang it. like damn. All right. <laughs> yeah. Here, Jay, just take my rod. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, 
Yeah, I think at first, and you know, too, the waters that I was fishing and still fish are not the simplest to figure out. And, you know, the Truckee River is probably where I spend most of my time, and it's a, a really great fishery, but it can be really challenging, and it humbles a lot of really good fishermen, so or anglers. Is it yeah, buggy yeah. when I call fishermen? <laughs> <laughs> can call them fishing poles, too. and, and Fishing poles, bobbers. Fishing string. We're not politically correct here, don't worry. Yeah. And they are bobbers. <laughs> they I'm are bobbers. stick with that. <laughs> they <laughs> the are strike bobbers. indicator, like, yeah, it might indicate it, but it's a bobber. It's just bobbing, man. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was uh, one of those things that I didn't like feeling like I was flailing. So every time I would go out and not have the results I wanted, I would go back and kind of say, why didn't I? What, what, what other tools do I need in my belt to, like, be able to attack this from a, like a systematic approach and figure out what, what can I change and how do I know when to change and what to, you know, all that. So when did you first kind of stumble on it on fly fishing? Yeah. Cause like, was it ever in your, in your sphere? Did you know anyone that did it before you got into it? So not like I didn't have any close friends that like mentioned, Hey, let's go fly fishing. Cause I probably would have done it. So that was the weird thing that it was like, it was kind of on my radar. It looked kind of cool. And then really with the, the flying that I got into being like backcountry flying, um, I was having a lot of fun just flying the plane and finding new places to land that like maybe no one's ever landed at before. And a lot of those is like, if you can land near a river or a lake, it's just like super cool. And then, Hey, we can set up and camp here. But a lot of the time too, we, I'd go up to the Idaho backcountry, which is like the Mecca for backcountry flying. And, uh, it's like, we'd go land at a strip and like get out, take a picture or two, like kick the dirt. Oh, that's cool. And then just fly on. And it was like, I right. kind of wanted a little more purpose to when I was up there. And two years ago, around this time, like early spring or late spring, uh, a friend of mine invited me up to, or wanted to join on a flying trip I was doing to Idaho. And he said, Hey, I'm going to bring a fly rod. You should get one. I was like, okay. And so I just went and bought like some Cabela's combo kit. Yeah. And I didn't like, this was the major mistake. I didn't do any research at all. Like I didn't even know how to like hook, you know, tie a leader on Yeah. like the loop to loop <laughs> connect. I didn't know anything. So did you have any fishing no experience in the, like no. no normal fishing. no so yeah. even growing up i think i fished like twice when i'd go to like an aunt or uncle's house and we'd go out to like some pond and catch bluegill but i'd never like i didn't even know how to tie a knot on a like line <laughs> or anything yeah i'm yeah. checking it yeah, yeah but so i was completely clueless and actually right before i got that fly rod i went and bought uh like a regular spinning rod but a collapsible one that could fit in the plane and i took it up on a camping trip at a, a reservoir near here just threw a spoon out. I did catch a bass. I was like stoked. I didn't even know what kind of fish it was. Right. <laughs> I knew like, oh, nothing. Fish. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. How do I pick it up? I like, it was so funny, but, um, yeah, after that Idaho trip, what a friend of mine did know how to fly fish. Well, two of them that I was with did. So they set me up, kind of taught me how I'm flailing. And I somehow caught like a little tiny trout. Um, but that was it. And then I came home and I was kind of like, okay, you know, for one, I look like a flailing idiot in the video trying to do it. So I'd like to at least look a little more composed and have an understanding. But um, then I was kind of like, I also want to like actually catch a fish and figure out why people are so into this. So that's probably what what opened that doorway and put me down that path. Dude, that's so cool. I, I think that's another fascinating thing, especially from a filmmaking standpoint, is understanding the why of why people seek out fly fishing or really any outdoor recreation. Yeah. But especially in like this world of fly fishing i think everyone has a different entrance to it everyone enters into it at different stages of life and there's a different meaning for everybody and that's why it's really interesting to hear like why you would do it or why someone else would do it because i do it for my own reasons or whatever and how i stumbled into it 
Um, and like Jay, you know, we, who we fished with this week, you know, he has a completely different path in yeah. fly fishing. Um, but it's super rad. You got into it, man. And that's like I was saying earlier, that's how, how we originally met. I, I saw one of your videos and, and message you Yeah. and I uh, was like, Oh dude, it'd be sick. We should go fish and fly or something. Yeah. And then what, you didn't see it for like three months or something. No. And I'd been meaning to reach out to you too. And I was just like, I didn't really know how. And then I think I was like, I should just write him a message on Instagram. So I, I went to Wildfly's Instagram. I'm like, oh, I don't follow. And it said follow back. And I was like, that's weird. So I hit follow back and I went to message you. And there was a message from you from like months ago. <laughs> but I, I guess I have some filter that if I don't follow you, it goes into my request folder on Instagram. And I'm just really bad at like checking that. Yeah. <laughs> that's where, so you went in this black abyss of, of requests that I never dude, checked. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And then when it popped up, I'm like, oh, hey, dude, sorry for like the latest response on earth. <laughs> Let's <laughs> definitely link up. No, that was sick. I think it was so funny because I'm pretty sure it was with my buddy Colby and we were talking about you or something. And cause he watches your videos and he was like, dude, you should totally link up with Trent. I was like, yeah, I, I sent him a message a while back, but I never heard, heard anything. And I'm pretty sure I checked my phone either that day or the day after. And you had, you had messaged me. <laughs> um, but yeah, we finally made it and we got to fish here kind of an interesting time around like may runoff this year you guys got record high snow yeah. we got record high snowfall in utah so we almost canceled this trip yeah we should talk about that yeah there, this almost didn't happen because mm -hmm. we planned this months ago and like historically of all my two years of experience like i fished through one spring so i definitely know yeah, <laughs> yeah. but like this time last year it was like we were at the end of runoff Everything was green lights, like, you know, every river that flows year round was like perfect. And then come last week when we were kind of like solidifying this plan, we're looking at things. And I'm like, uh, every single river's flowing at like 10 times what it normally would. We're at like absolute peak runoff. Everything's blown out. I'm like, and I flew, you know what, a week or so ago and looked at everything and there was nowhere to land. Everything yeah. was covered in snow or completely like water or mud to where I was like, I'm not, I don't know what we're going to do. And so we kind of made that decision last minute that we're like, dude, just, just come out here. Worst case, we'll, you know, we'll use the plane to go look at things and then we'll go drive the truck and see, hopefully we catch a fish. Yeah. But it was like, I didn't have very high hopes. Yeah. I, I know I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. And again, I've never, I've never been to Reno. So I didn't, I've told you this week, I didn't know, like, I didn't know much about the fishing here besides Pyramid Lake is here yeah. or somewhere close. Um, but we didn't, we were just like maybe we'll do that another time. Um, but it really worked out. We got to, we got to see some cool water. We got to land at some cool spots, some spots we didn't think we were able to, and even go up to Northern California and fish with your buddy Jay. Yeah. Dude. And, and like right from the start. So what I picked you up from the airport, we went and got lunch and then we're like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, you want to go look at the truckie and knowing that the truckie was flowing way too high. Yeah. I was like, I'll just show him kind of what it's about, but I didn't expect to catch into anything. <laughs> And then within what, 15 minutes, you catch like a solid Brown, yeah. which, you know, there's a lot of rainbows in the trucky. The Browns are more like the trophy things. That's what people come and like try to target. And a lot of times never catch anything. Dude, it was like a 20 inch Brown. Yeah, it was <laughs> solid. Fat too on five X <laughs> and it ran downstream <laughs> ran. in the, there's no bank. Nope. Like I'm trying to net it for you. And I'm like, Oh God, it swims around a tree. And I'm like waist deep in the water trying to find the thing. And somehow it like got itself up into the limb of, of the tree under there. And you're like, I think it's snagged. And I'm like, it is, but it's still on. And I like scooped it <laughs> yeah. out of like 
in the tree branch. Yeah. It was so rad. And something that you guys might not know if you watch the, the video is uh, Trent's holding the camera the whole time. He's holding my camera. And <laughs> he like, anytime you pick up someone's camera, you don't really know how to use it yet. <laughs> and so you're holding the camera, filming me, going to film net. I was, dude, I was killing it. <laughs> and then and then you're like, you net the fish. You're like, wait, dude, I don't think I recorded the whole thing. So in my GoPro, there's there's a shot of you just like holding the camera running around. And there's just no footage. From nah, it. dude, I lived it, you know? Yeah, It's exactly. one of those just, I had to live that one in the moment. Yeah, yeah, we had to get the kinks out early. <laughs> I had no idea. We, oh, I felt so embarrassed. <laughs> oh, Dude, but it happens. Like it ha- That's the thing. It happens to, to everybody. Dude, in my defense... Why don't you have the trigger set to record? Yeah. You know how you record to, that my... camera? By hitting the trigger. But that's a cine camera. And you know how you record this camera? Hit By hitting the trigger. the trigger. This one has a, a red button that's like it's screaming. Just it's like if you record. open the latch and then go around the back and it's like impossible to find. It is. It is impossible. No, that was my bad. It's okay. And it makes a noise when you stop recording, but it doesn't when you start. I'm assuming so it doesn't make the noise. So I don't know. Anyways, I, I we think missed it, but it's the heat of the moment. I was like, push the button. I'm good. I'm all excited. Yeah. We got the fish. And I'm like, so oh. glad we got the fish because it wrapped around a log and then you netted it. And I was like, wait, you have it? I thought it was gone. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, it's good. No, I'm like, no, dude, I'm good. And I just got to figure out how to untangle it from the tree. Yep. And uh, yeah, so that was day one. Like not even day one. That Biggest was like, fish that I've caught this year. Yeah. It was like, a solid right fish. Right off the bat. Yeah. Like, oh, Reno's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> and then the second day, we uh, we basically, we had one spot in mind that I thought we could land at. Um, I knew that the creek feeding into that reservoir was going to be Stampede Reservoir. The little truckie that feeds it can fish well in the spring. Um, but it's like, I, I assume it's pretty blown out. And when I flew over that area uh, last week, completely covered in snow and the reservoir's so high, I don't even know if I could land there anyway. Mm-hmm. So what we were going to do was go scout a bunch of different waterways, sections and of river as well as lakes, um, and see where we could possibly take the truck to go fishing. So I kind of had this planned route that we would go over lakes that I was sure we wouldn't be able to land at. And then we could end up at stampede in hopes that we might be able to land there. Mm-hmm. And we flew directly up to Frenchman and it was like, hold on, there's a nice looking spot right there. And we're all checking on X like, yeah, that's public. Like we're, we're in like, you know, a couple passes and it's like, dude, we can, let's land there. Yeah. And we land there we look at the water. We're like, dude, it looks good. And what do you know? We spent a little bit of time, but then you got into a couple nice fish. Yeah. Yeah. It was <laughs> cool. I mean, no one, there's no way anyone was fishing that or thought to fish that this time of year. It's kind of out there. It's kind of a weird meandering Creek that you said is sometimes dry throughout the year above above the lake yeah i don't know if it fully dries out my guess is there might be a spring somewhere uh way upstream so it probably gets down to a trickle later and it probably gets pretty warm so i doubt there's trout in it later in the year but clearly they go up it to spawn Mm -hmm. um so i think that's what we were getting is is fish that were like kind of moving into pre-spawn i'm sure they go way the heck up there from the lake yeah but um yeah it was was the coolest thing to be circling around it and take a couple laps and be like, what do you think, dude? I'm like, well, let's try it. It yeah. looks sick. And uh, yeah, we found some fish. Missed a couple tanks. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I thought we were just going to be catching, you know, 10 to 15 inch fish. And there's probably an 18 or 19 inch couple fish that we missed. There were two of them in there. Yeah. That were like chasing the egg like crazy. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're just like, what is going on? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I dropping know. it in. Yeah. That was cool. 
I just loved the aspect of using the plane to to kind of scout because we've been looking at all these maps, you know, and you don't really know until you get out there. Yeah. And then you also get that bird's eye view that you don't get on a – I mean, you can get on a map, but it's like real time. Yeah. So that was pretty sick. Um, I know there's a couple spots we couldn't go to that you had flown by, but again, I'm s- – stoked with with how it turned out yeah it's kind of cool again like I, I got into fishing because i wanted an excuse to fly the plane and have a reason to land a purpose to land places so it's funny that as i've gotten into fishing i, I found that just because I, I only have one passenger seat and you know weather can be such a limiting factor that i don't do it as much as i should so a lot of times I just take the truck and I go drive to fishing spots. And so I, I overlook a lot of the flying stuff. And then if I end up going out and flying with my buddies, no one's into fishing. So I, I don't do this enough. So there's a lot of different opportunities that op- up, open up through different times of the year that I'm, I need to take better advantage of. Cause that was mm-hmm. fun. Like we, we literally did pretty much three different awesome uses for flying the plane to go fishing. Right. So we did the one that was, we took what would have been an hour plus drive with a long hike in, turned it into a 15 minute flight and landed right at the Creek and fished it and then flew back. And it was like a morning thing. Like yeah. we were, we were done early and that it's like, again, time travel in that sense that it's just so easy to just pop up, land, we're there. And then the next day we went to that micro little spring Creek out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. That's just, I still boggles my mind that that's even there. Like, where does the water Doesn't come make from? Sense. Yeah. And then the fact that there's fish in there is still is like crazy to me. But I guess you think of from an ecosystem standpoint or habitat for trout, it's perfect. Same temperature year round, good pH level, like, you know, prolific bug life that comes out of there. So it makes sense. But it's got cover for them to hide under too with the banks. Yeah. It's really, really good for fish to to live in there. Um, But that to get there, I've driven my truck. It's, I mean, probably a four hour drive, hundreds of miles that a lot of it are off-road rough like you need a high clearance four-wheel drive vehicle it's going to scratch the hell out of your truck getting there and it's just like a pain to get there so if you're going to day trip it you're spending minimum eight hours in the car Mm -hmm. so you don't really day trip it normally you're like going up to camp and it's like a big ordeal but for us to just jump in the plane it was a one-hour flight like take off to touchdown and we just what we're five minute walk or less i mean we're a quarter mile from the stream we landed on a road we just landed yep. on like a random dirt road. Yeah. <laughs> little, so. There's like a little stretch that's like 250 feet long. That's straight. And that's what we landed on. Yeah. <laughs> it's really short. And uh, yeah. And then that, that stream is so fun because it's like big, you know, big old flies in a tiny little creek. But anyway, that was one use. And then the next day being yesterday, we did uh, a whole different thing, which is flying airport to airport to go link up with Jay, Jay Cockrum, which he has Jay decaters. Anyone that fishes an indicator should get one of his. Cause I truly think it's like the best indicator. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, just flying airport to airport. He picked us up, took us on a guided trip up fall river, uh, which is like the largest spring. He said in the United States, he huh? said it's like the largest spring fed, uh, yeah. River system in the United States. Yeah. Or something like that. It's pretty wild. Dude, and what was more wild is those fish. Like, maybe they weren't the biggest fish, but pound for pound, holy crap, those things fight. God, dude. Dude, and I have tennis elbow that I've been, like, nursing for over a year, and the thing that hurts the worst is 
it like you know my back cast hurts but fighting a fish is the worst thing and so yesterday you heard me a couple times like oh no yeah you're just complaining oh (laughs) someone else fight the fish for me (laughs) really quick side tangent what is tennis elbow for a dummy like me so it's lateral epicondylitis it's when a tendon in your elbow gets upset from repeated use it's normally not like one instance that hurts it but basically the the flexion of your wrist tilting up this way where the muscle connects to your to your elbow back there the tendon there gets like kind of out of whack or torn a little bit and it's it's a pain because like any gripping motion hurts it any like flexion when you're going up this way hurts it and uh yeah it's like i mean people get it from tennis i assume from it's like from their their backswing or whatever um but yeah it's a it's a bitch it it doesn't not conducive for fly fishing no it's horrible (laughs) and i I always feel like stupid that i got it from fly fishing but then i talked to other people like jay was saying that he gets it all the time he gets it from rowing Mm. so he's had it on both elbows and gone through it a bunch of different times and I don't think it's totally uncommon, but man, I just have not been able to shake it. It's probably because I never give myself a break from fishing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm starting to take it more seriously. Yeah. I mean, dude, that was one of the most fun days of fishing I've had in a while. And I did, I don't know, it was like fishing. I didn't really know much about the, the Fall River. I didn't really know what to expect. And if we, we, I knew we were going to be indicator and nymph fishing the whole day. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. But whatever you know it is what it is it's not yeah. like the most exciting thing but that was so fun yeah it's like it's light tippet uh small bugs and you're making really long technical drifts you know these long just anchor men's and just piling your line trying to get the fish to see to see the flies first and not see you and then you hook them it is like i feel like yesterday was probably a 60 percent success rate of us landing it yeah it for me probably like a 30 percent. dude i don't think i was up there either especially <laughs> on that lake it was like yeah gosh it, it is crazy because i don't think i normally fish that far away like you know it's nice to cast far but you don't normally have to mm-hmm. uh, euro nymphing is like a perfect example of that you're like catching them at your feet but here with that crystal clear spring fed creek or river you did have to cast pretty far away and then you had to be in such direct contact with your flies or you were losing them that's why the men's were so important and just keeping that line like no big bows or s's in your line and that's why we were always doing those anchor men's and yeah it was like as soon as it dropped if you missed it for a second they were gone because those tiny little flies they just like wiggle right out of them so yeah and the indicator sometimes wouldn't go all the way down it would just kind of twitch a little bit you'd see it just kind of turn yeah and uh yeah jay would be like oh he bit it or whatever he would say get it get it get it get it and uh yeah you it it's like uh it's honestly really mentally draining not only was it super hot yesterday but it's mentally draining because you're so focused and the entire drift you have to be looking at that indicator for any little twitch and it, i don't know i was like we we're both remember in the middle of the day we were just like didn't say anything we we're just exhausted yeah <laughs> like wow this yeah. is fun, but it's it's engaging. Yeah, we were putting in work. Yeah. At least it paid off, too. Like, there's a lot of times where I feel like I just go so hard for a day trying to get into fish and don't. And I know this is because of Jay. Jay, like, he knew where to put us, when to, you know, the whole nine. Like, we were dialed from that. But it, mm. those those fish were persnickety. That's the term he Persnickety. Was <laughs> yes, dude. It's like, what was that term? But they were. 
Like he was like, no, I know what they eat. He's been fishing there for 20 years. He's got that dialed as good as anyone. And, and we were struggling for a little bit, but man, once it was on, it was on it, it. Yeah. It was a good time. Like I said, I was not expecting, I don't know what I was expecting. Yeah. It was, it was a lot more still. And we were in the, you know, a jet boat kind of, or it was like a mix of a drift boat and a power boat or whatever. With yeah, it, was a jet like motor. A, it was like a power jet or power drift boat with a outboard with a jet drive on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he had, um, he had that, what was the, the motor at the front, the trolling. Oh motor? yeah. Not the trolling motor. Yeah, it is a, it's like an electric trolling motor that can be an electric anchor. Cause it's got GPS. Right. So yeah, he so would just put it in anchor mode and things like turning and it kept us in the same spot. I, I mean, I guess bass fishermen use that stuff all the time, but I never use it. And I, yeah. I'd never even thought of using that on like a river where it was moving. Mm-hmm. That was so cool. So, so much nicer nice. than dropping an anchor. And I've got to think it's got to be way better on the, you know, habitat. I always feel a little bad, like dragging an anchor through potentially like where fish live. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, certain times he'd pull it up and just row yeah. for a little bit. We'd get our, our long drifts and drift into the, into the fish. But then we moved over to some still water, which is really cool. It was like a, another spring Creek or another spring that fed into a lake that was a tributary into the fall river. Um, and that was, that was also sick. Like again, coming into this, I've never been a big Stillwater guy. It's just cause I haven't done much of it, but yeah. that really opened my eyes to how exciting it can be and how challenging it can be, especially with the lava rock that we were dealing with. Dude, that was, I was sitting there. I'm like, I, I don't understand why these fish are just walking all over me. Like I felt like I could not control the fish. Like it wasn't like one getting the cast out there was tough and getting it in front of their face and then getting them to bite. Like th- that was all its own thing. But I wasn't having trouble with that for some reason. That part was easy. I just couldn't get it to the boat. Yeah. <laughs> Those dang fish were so hot and it was like they'd be running. And then all that rock was, was like you said, volcanic lava rock has all these sharp edges. So if the fish gets around one of them, your tippets, because we're on super thin tippet. Mm-hmm. So you had to keep them out of the rocks, but you're on five X on these tiny flies. So you couldn't pull that hard. And it was just like such a weird, delicate act of trying to get that fish back to you. And not to mention, these are native rainbow trout that have been in, in this waterway in these river systems since like the dinosaurs. Yeah. And I mean, if anyone has caught a rainbow, I mean, I'm sure all you guys are familiar with rainbow trout, but they're like one of the hardest fighting trouts in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and they surely showed that <laughs> they whooped my butt there at the Dude, end. Oh my gosh. It was so good. Oh, we were both like, what is going on? And Jay's <laughs> like, you're getting your ass worked. <laughs> yeah. well, what's happening, Jay? Oh, you're getting your ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Dude, it was sick, man. Um, and then another thing I just really loved about this trip was like being able to hang out as just a fellow creator. And I think what we do is sometimes a very lonely career and a lonely it's just you're making a lot of decisions on your own and you're doing there's not like a, a framework to follow you know there more and more there is because there's more people doing it but when we both started it was just like the wild west and you're just making videos and putting it out there and sometimes people are commenting sometimes people are subscribing and then here we are it's like our full-time career which is incredible yeah. but it's also a challenging thing you know so being able to like talk about youtube and the business and try and understand like processes like hear your processes processes for editing and filming and seeing how you put your episodes together is really interesting yeah like you put three videos i think right three videos together from this trip yeah 
and uh, each one is kind of a different story. You know, I think mine will be two to three videos series, but yeah, um, no, I just thought it was sick. Yeah, and you're you're totally right. It, YouTube as a creator is very isolating. I always like to say I'm like I, it feels like I'm on an island out here because I don't have any. There's no other creators that at least I know in my area that I ever get to like hang out with or talk with about like any of the stuff that goes into content creating. And even though you and I are kind of in a little different genres as far as what kind of content we make, it's very similar in the sense that like we both try to put in decent production value. Uh, they are adventure films and whether the niche is, you know, flying or fly fishing, you know, outside of that, it's pretty similar and we're dealing with the same thing, like running micro businesses and trying to, you know, figure out all these different sources of, of revenue to try to sustain, to allow us to continue creating free content for people to enjoy. But there's so much that goes into that, that we're just doing on our own and we don't have anyone to, as a sounding board to like bounce ideas off of or have look at and coming from the film industry, you know, film has always been such a collaborative thing. Like there's not been a, a big film that's been made by one person, you know, overall it takes a, it takes a tribe and mm. you get into YouTube and that part is lost. So it's always fun to hang out with someone else that, that understands it, you know? Yeah. When, when did it go from, you were just creating, you know, starting to just throw some airplane videos up for fun to it becoming something that could become a career? COVID. So, um, the house that we're sitting under right now, uh, I built, I did an owner build. I had zero construction experience. I've, Dude, I'm, I'm good at biting <laughs> off more than I can chew, but we DIY. bought this property. Yeah, we bought this property back in 2016. We tried and fell on our face four different times to build out here. And finally, what it came down to was like, I'm going to have to do this myself. And so in 2019, uh, did this like hard money loan, uh, bought a kit for a house and was like, I'll build it. So during the build of the house, any jobs that called that weren't like really big, um, I would say, hey, sorry, I'm busy. And so I think a lot of my clients found other, you know, drone crews to, to do their stuff, uh, during that period. And then right after I finished the house, COVID-19 hit and the film industry shut down. And so it was like, I just basically took a year off went a hundred thousand dollars over budget on a house that I already couldn't afford. And now my, my career's gone. <laughs> and oh, so, no. uh, I, you know, I'd gotten offers for sponsors on YouTube videos before it just always felt so like dirty. Like I feel bad. You know, like these people are already like, I, I just feel so fortunate that anyone would give such a valuable asset of their time to sit down and watch my videos. So to like rob from that and put an ad in it, I just felt wrong about it. And you know, there's still maybe a part of me that does, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I am stepping away from a full-time job in the film industry to f create hopefully entertaining free content for people. And hopefully they can understand. And it seems like everyone does, you know, in this day and age. But basically the COVID thing forced me to start taking um, more sponsorships on the YouTube channel. And then pretty quickly, I'm like, wow, I kind of like this. Like I have a lot more control. I can offset most of my income and uh, have fun doing it. So what were you at subscriber wise? And like what kind of views were you pulling around this time when like when sponsors first started reaching out to you because you have what like 450,000 now yeah but looking back in 2020 you started the channel what 2014 mm, no I mean I, I started 
I decided to take the YouTube channel seriously right at the end, it's like September of 2017. Okay. So that was when I was kind of like, let's do this. I think I posted a video in 2014, but I didn't start making flying videos until 2017, I think. Okay. And it was towards the end that I said, oh, I'm going to try vlogging. I'm going to put a video out a week and all that. But yeah, um, I think I started getting the offers for sponsorship around 100,000 subscribers. And back then, I think I was getting you know close to 100,000 views on a video. Maybe it was less than that, but... Um, it was interesting that the ratio, like when your channel's growing, you'll get more views than you have subscribers. And then over time it's like, that's swapped. And I think I see that with a lot of channels that have been around for a while. I get to a point where the, a lot of them have more subscribers than they have views. If you're getting more views than you have subscribers, like you are, that's a really good indication that you're making some good stuff or you're just not converting views to subscribers. Yeah. Like one of the two. People just click on it and they watch and then they leave. You know, like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you got to tell people stash. to subscribe a little bit more often. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's another part of it too. Sometimes I do feel like not dirty, but I don't want to like force it too much. Yeah. And that could be just me. Like, I think there's, I think I've done a better job in the last year. There's some videos I've, I've put it in. Like, oh, you should subscribe or like having a reason to. But I think as long as people are coming back to watch, it's exciting. Yeah. You know, and as as you know, like when you actually meet people in public in real life that watch your stuff, it's like the coolest moment that yeah they would like it's it makes their day to see you, which yeah. is crazy. I'm like, dude, what? Yeah, it's so weird. We're just normal people. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm no different than yeah. anyone else I meet. And the, yeah. When they get excited, it's it's a huge compliment. It's like the highest form of flattery, probably. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the subscribe thing too is funny. Like I don't like asking for subscribes or likes or anything like that. I say it at the end, it's like my average wrap out, but it's like not, you know, I don't ever say it with any true like force. But it, it was enlightening a friend of mine and he's young, he's like our age. He was like, yeah, dude, I wanted to subscribe, but like uh, how much does it cost? And that was so funny to me. I'm like, dude, these. I bet a lot of people just don't understand how that works. And especially with, YouTube's current algorithm and how they they uh, put out all their content to people on you know users on the platform the subscribe button is essentially just a like button for the entire channel it's like it's not going to spam you you're not getting emails because of it you're not like you're not going to get like notifications unless you turn those on mm -hmm. all it's doing is saying hey I like this channel and YouTube will probably show more of my content but it's not a guarantee you'll see all of it and it'll show you more content that's like mine so a subscribe helps your experience as a YouTube user grow and, and it'll make it a better, more catered experience. So subscribing, like it's not like, you know, you only get a couple and you'll run out, like subscribe to any channel you like. Mm -hmm. It's a good, it, it helps the creator in the sense that it helps grow that, that number and that metric. But, uh, and it helps, you know, back them up as like, a, okay, this is a like on my channel. Like this many people like it and it's, it's worth continuing on and all my effort that I put into these is, is for something. Yeah. So not, yeah, it's, it's cool. What, was there a certain video or time frame where you felt like the channel really started taking off and you really started kind of getting a, a groove and like a feel of the content that you wanted to make? Yeah. Um, 2018 was my, my year. Um, it was a eventful year. That was the year that, um, I started, you know, like I said, I started really seriously right at the end of 2017 and I saw pretty rapid growth but that same year is when like I had an engine quit and I made some videos about that which is you know kind of more sensational or engaging than yeah. just your every other day videos 
but that same year, like I flew to Oshkosh, which is the world's biggest air show, uh, with a group of my buddies. And it's like a big, like, you know, it, it's like, what do we spend 40 something hours in the plane round trip to get there and back. So it, they're big, long days, adventures across the United States. And we're, we fly as a group of like 10 pilots just in formation across the whole country. It's really fun. Oh, so it's a really sick. cool adventure. And that's why I was like, I have to document this. And so doing those dailies up to Oshkosh, um, seemed to bump it. And then when I was at Oshkosh, I ended up as the creator on the rise on the trending page, which I don't know if that's a big thing, but it felt big at the moment. Awesome. And then I did a walk around of a, a friend of mine's plane. That was like the coolest plane ever built. My friend, Mike Patey, he's like Tony Stark in real life. <laughs> so he built this plane and like, I followed the whole build up to it. And in aviation, what you get when you put all your data into a computer as far as numbers and expectations of what an aircraft will do and what happened in real life are normally like way apart. Everyone's like, it's going to do all this stuff. And, and then the real plane comes out and it's like, okay, uh, Draco that Mike built was the opposite, like seeing it in real life. This was a 3000 pound gigantic old, like world war two Polish airplane that he put a turbine engine on the front and it would rip off the ground in a hundred feet and climb like almost vertical like stupid and it had reverse thrust on the prop so he would land and just throw it into reverse and things are like blowing air everywhere and being a cloud of dust and oh it was like God. it was the coolest plane so i did a walk around to that and the thing got like a million video a million views in the first week and it's continued to grow but like with that that was like the three things in a row it's like daily vlogging creator on the rise and then this my first like semi-viral video and yeah, that yeah. was the first big i went from like fifty thousand subscribers to a hundred in a week whoa what did the process of that daily vlogging look like and how long did you do it like what, what was, it was your just, schedule it was just the dri uh, the trip so it ended up being like a two-week round or no almost three week but yeah i was basically like lean and mean i was like i'm not color correcting anything and i just had this recipe of like every morning i'm gonna open up on what the plan is and then I had flying montage. And then wherever we'd land, it'd be like, okay, here we are. And if there's any shenanigans that happened there, I film it. And then it was like another flying montage. So like each break at every airport, you know, if there's something interesting, we talk about it. If there's something to show at the airport, I'd show it. But it was like, just keep it short and sweet. And then every night I'd just jump on the computer and start editing. Luckily, you know, we try to end our flying days early afternoon. So we'll be like taking off at sunrise every day. And then we'll fly till like noon or one sometimes two or three and then we're done for the day. So when all the other guys would take a nap or something, I was like, no, just editing away. And how long do you think it took you to edit each video? A couple hours. Like it was literally like, imagine the fastest rough, like selects cut you could do. Yeah. And then just export. And oh I already gosh. like before then, like I, like I said, I, I figured out camera color spaces that I was happy with. I did everything in 1080 the first year. So I didn't do 4k mostly for upload stuff. I didn't want to have to, upload too much or run out of space on my computer and then, back when uploads took a long time yeah not only exporting but like uploading to youtube took a while <laughs> everything took a lot a while and uh i had picked a bunch of songs beforehand so i just had like my own little library that i knew i could pull from and then my buddy scott palmer was flying with me he had another kit fox we're not related but we yeah, like yeah. kind of look like brothers and we have the same <laughs> last name so everyone thinks we're brothers we're not but um he we would be sharing a hotel room everywhere and so I would like finish my, my video and I'd, hand, I'd show it to him and be like, dude, can you watch this through? And like, every single time he'd just take the headphones off and be like, send it. And like, I loved it. Cause he was like, dude, that was sick. Go. And I was like, dude, <laughs> I you it. are what I need for dailies because I, I could, you know, you're the same way 
we could, you know, finesse a video for months if I wanted to make it perfect. And mm -hmm. so this like learning that sometimes done is better than good can be a mentality that works on YouTube. I always love the, the saying along these lines. It's like uh, a good book that is published is better than a perfect book that's never written. Yeah. And I think that element of YouTube and just working on projects and art and media, like you got to just finish it. Right. There's a certain point when it's just done, you can't keep perfecting it and then take whatever you maybe didn't fully get to, to, to fine tune on that one and take that into the next project. And yeah. so like over time you're just slowly building, Yeah. but you're putting out videos, Yeah. you know, consistently. It's cool. It's like you're getting to practice throughout this time and build the skill set, but you still publish what you're practicing on. Like each, each one is like a stepping stone and getting better or more efficient or, or understanding what kind of stories you're telling and how to tell them efficiently. Yeah. And then you're and getting feedback, direct feedback from the audience. It's yeah, it's super cool. Minutes. And, and also it's YouTube, you know, it's supposed to be raw and authentic. The connection between the creator or the person on camera and the viewer is closer than any other platform out there. Like you're not going to watch TV and the people you're watching on TV, be able to interact with them like you can on YouTube. Like it's a totally new thing. So that, uh, intimacy and the raw nature of it allow for, you know, less perfection. And I think the saying I was thinking of is done is better than perfect. Not done is better than good. Yeah. Because yeah, you no. can make it good. Yeah. No, I know. What you, I know what you meant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a good crash course in that, you know, I don't have to spend all this time on each video mm -hmm. for people to enjoy it. And it's funny going back and watching those. There's some of my favorite videos to watch. Yeah. Like I'm still like, dang, those are, those are good videos. Like even like, especially like me knowing that I'm like, dude, I sat down for a couple hours and just hit export and then on to the next like format cards. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that we've been talking about this week, I've shared with you and just my goal for this summer in the next like six months is, you know, I made these huge films last year that just took sometimes up over a month to edit. I don't even doubt it, dude. Watching them, I can feel it. Yeah. It's awesome. But no, and I, I, I'm, I'm so proud of them, and I, I will continue to make big videos like that, but I do want to kind of explore what it looks like to, to create maybe more frequently and maybe a little more raw format. Yes. You know, there's so many amazing moments that happen on these fishing trips, and sometimes if you're making such a big video, one video over seven days or something like that, you have to cut so much. Yeah. And I want to, like, bring people into those, those moments more, and I think shooting um, – but I, th I just think the next, uh, you call it like maybe season of content that people are going to see is going to, it's going to still feel like a wildfire video, but it's going to bring you in a little bit more than just over editing sometimes I would say. Yeah. And it's weird, you know, well, especially after getting to hang out with you, like for one, what's so fun about your videos is that it's kind of what it feels like to go fishing with your buddies. Like I get that whole experience, but you're, it's obviously the highlight reel of that, but like getting to hang with you, you're a fun guy to hang out with. And I don't know that there's maybe enough of that kind of stuff in your videos, like enough of your character and all that. So that's where putting out more content that is a little less polished and refined. I mean, you still yes, have fun, like still put in some cinematic elements, you know, shoot it nice. That's what you do. But when you put out more of it, I think more of you comes out and then it's, it's more fun for the audience because they all like you that, you know, they want to know you more. Mm -hmm. It works. It's, it's just uh, it's a hard thing to do though, because at least from my perspective, I, you know, I don't think I'm necessarily that interesting. So I don't really, in, in the stuff I do, I'm so used to that it's hard for me to 
distinguish like what should I talk about and what do people want to see or what do they care about versus like what I do. Yeah. And then it's funny too, talking to you and like what you watch on YouTube. That's not the kind of films you make. Yeah. And same with me. It's like, I don't, I don't watch flying. Like I watched, yeah, fly fishing. And then I watch all these other like, you know, totally different left field. Random little DIY videos. Yeah, exactly. Podcasts and stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that's the same thing. It's probably like a little bit of imposter syndrome where you're like, why am I worth putting myself in front of camera? Like I'm not that interesting or cool. Like I think that's always in the back of our minds as creators, especially putting ourselves out there. Yeah. But you know, I think at the end of the day, it's like, this is the, what I was dealt with, like these cards that I have yeah. the same with you. And like, you're, you are an interesting guy and you have a lot of interesting parts to you and like perspectives that maybe I don't have. And so I think that's where the YouTube platform offers that like you get to just be yourself yeah. and you get to share things in your perspective, how you see the world, how I see the world through fly fishing and other outdoor adventure. And yours is like how you see the world through flying and now more fly fishing and other type of content. Like you did the Baja trip. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I just love that, that aspect of it. It gives you the freedom to like express who you are through your, your work Yeah, and your, your medium. And I think like, you know, filmmaking at the end of the day is just visual storytelling and the story you're going to be the most able to tell fully and authentically is your own. Mm. And that's why vlogging works so well. And I think the hard part is like exactly what you're talking about, like the imposter syndrome or the, um, like insinuating that, you know, a bunch because you're saying it on camera and that's not necessarily the case. It's like, Hey, I'm just telling my story here, guys. I'm saying it cause that's what I know. And it's not to say that that's, you know, the solid fact or the only, it's just how I feel. Yeah. And I'm just telling you that. Yeah. And so I know that there's some viewers that obviously don't understand that, but I think the vast majority of everyone does that. They're like, Hey, I'm just riding along and hanging with this kid and this is what he thinks. And that's cool. And so just try to, we're going on these cool adventures. And if you can let other people experience that through your video, like Mm -hmm. I think that's the best thing ever. Cause also too, like I've had comments from, from people that are like, you know, it's super sad, but like older people that say are have cancer and aren't necessarily on their deathbed, but close to it. And they're just like, Hey, this is the type of stuff I wish I could be doing. And I get mm-hmm. to experience it through your videos. And you're like, see, that's like a reason right there to keep creating like for the people that can't, you know, totally dude. Yeah. Yeah. I have the same thing with like some older, older folks that, that watch the videos that like, Oh man, you know, I remember doing that back in my days. Like I'm 65 now, or I wish I could still run around on a bike and go fishing or whatever. Like that's awesome. You know? And, and I think I expressed in the, the most recent video I put out just about how I was burnt out last year. And just like, I, I was also going through a breakup and it was, it was like a lot of personal stuff going on mixed with like so trying to figure out a balance with with the work dude we're you know? still regular people we still, still have regular problems yeah like I, totally. I i don't know why everyone thinks that it's just like we can just be a little monkey on the stage at a circus and just entertain me it's like well dude no i, I still need time mm-hmm. and burnout's a real deal dude I'm, i've yeah, battled have, yeah, it myself i'd love to hear kind of if you've had any of that experience and maybe how you've because it seems like you found a pretty good balance now with what you do and like you know how you have your wife and you guys are able to make time for each other and you're able to make time to go fishing and fly on your own without filming. Like, was there any moments of burnout and how did you, how do yes. you figure out the balance? Yes. I'm still working on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I just recently brought in Jackson. He's, who's editing for me right now. Um, hopefully he'll be a long-term solution. I'm excited about having that. So 
so for me editing is such a, a difficult thing uh, i th- i'm i'm pretty good at it i'm decent at it i'm not i'm not the best at it but um for how much i charge myself i'm great at it you know i'm yeah. like i'm free yeah <laughs> so um and i'm fast and i know what story i'm trying to to tell so from an editing perspective i'm a really hard person to replace but it's what drains me. I'm like, I can't like the amount of time that goes into them. I'm not enthusiastic about editing anymore. You know, I did it professionally for years, but it feels so much like work and it's just, it's, it's so taxing that that's where I lose. Like basically all the wind from my sales gets taken from editing. So having Jackson in there, um, you know, doing that and I've been letting them do full through edits and kind of where I see him working moving forward is, is get through the, um, we got beeping going on. Cameras are rolling. That one is. Is this one? I think it's my lawnmower. I got a robot lawnmower that's yelling at us. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> keep going, Jackson. But uh, yeah, I think long term, I'll probably have Jackson doing some full through edits, but some of the ones I really want to get my you know feet wet back into, I'll probably have him kind of do a selects cut, kind of get me to a, a good starting point, and then I'll I'll take the wheel from there. But I've also got Jerry, who was previously my boss, director in the film industry, kind of helping with the management end kind of keeping me on subject, making sure I, I stay true and, and keep working. Cause I can inherently be a little lazy and totally choose to go Same fishing here. seven <laughs> days a week instead of work. But, uh, and he's also good at replying to emails and I'm not, Oh, so. I'm terrible. Dude. My inbox is like 5,000 <laughs> and just keeps <laughs> building up. Yeah. So just, you know, I, I did a collaboration with, uh, Dave Sparks, heavy D. Um, he used to be on, uh, what the diesel brothers on YouTube. I mean, sorry, Discovery Channel now switched to YouTube and runs his own channel. And he's big. He, he's, he's doing it well and he's making really good content. And it was enlightening in that collaboration that he has like a whole team that helps him with it. And even though it's the Heavy D channel, it's his channel, it's about him and, and his ex- escapades. It, it doesn't mean he has to do everything. Mm-hmm. And it just like watching how efficient he's built that whole thing and how well it's working. I'm like, okay, I just need to bring in some help. And it doesn't mean that it, it's not still the raw authentic, like what I want it to be. It just means that I can continue to create and not be draining to the point of burnout because I definitely did. Like, you know, sometimes I overcommit and I'm thankful for the sponsors for a couple of reasons. One, you know, cause it allows me to keep doing this and not have to go find another job, but also they keep me honest. So if I commit to a couple of videos, there's a lot of times where it's like, you know, maybe I'm not inspired. Maybe I don't feel like I have something worth filming, but I have a sponsor obligation, so I better go make something. And sometimes those videos are like some of the coolest because I really had to like go outside my comfort zone and and make a video about something that I didn't know if, if people would be interested in. Mm. So, um, those times though, when I had a lot of obligations and you you let the stress compile, that's when burnout happens. Yep. You're just like, dude, I've got too much on my plate. I, this isn't worth it. What am I doing? So I think it's really valuable, like building team around what you're doing or a team yes. around it. That's something I've been working on this this past couple months. Um, and it's yeah, it helps you not feel as alone in that world. And there's also like a certain point when you realize you can't do everything. Yes. And it's so hard because it's like your baby. It's your, uh, you know, so much of your like personality is like tied into cause it's like us, right? Yeah. We are the ones it's like our perspective. We're the character We're we're like the visionary for where we want to take our content, our channels. And, but there's a certain point when you, you have to hand off certain tasks, like 
you know, responding to emails, dealing with sponsors, maybe editing selects, even editing full episodes, which is something I've like, I have some friends this year who are going to be helping with, which I think will help with that balance. But it is a little hard because you're handing off your baby yeah. <laughs> and you're like, you know, I want it to be, to be how I want it to be. But at a certain point, it's like, let someone else have a little bit of freedom and put their personal touch on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not to be taken lightly. Like we put a lot of energy to get here and, and this audience that I like to think of as friends, like they come expecting something to come hang out with us in a way that we have taught them to expect. Mm-hmm. So if you bring in someone that throws off that, that balance, it's, it sucks. It's not good. So figuring out how to, how to get someone to come in and, and offset the workload while not eroding the authenticity of, of you and your channel. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a weird balance. Yeah. It's doable though. Cause I've seen it. <laughs> so it's that's where I'm, I'm currently at trying to refine that. And we'll see. I, the biggest thing is like, I'm learning to plan ahead. You seem like you're much better at this than me. Um, planning ahead and I need to keep shooting content ahead of time to where I'm not in a mad dash to edit overnight to get something out for approval tomorrow from a sponsor, you know, like mm-hmm. giving myself leeway. And having things to where I have the time to edit it instead of, you know, shooting it and editing it the same day to try to yeah <laughs> Yeah, to try to get it out. Yeah. There is something exciting, though, about uh, turning over content quickly. Yeah. And I think that's one of the one of the things I missed out on over the last six or seven months was like each video, you know, I'd, the bike pack, for example, we filmed that last July and it came out in like February. Right. And you're so excited after the trip. You want to share that with people. And obviously it's a big film, like the biggest film I've put together. So it took some time, but you want to be up to date with your audience and kind of sharing like what's going on with wildfly. What's going on with the fishing? What are we, what's coming up, you know, and keeping people in the loop instead of saying, Oh, we went on this adventure. And then six months later, Oh, here's the video finally. So it's like, I don't know. It's a tough balance trying to figure that out. But have you found that there is like uh, a ratio or have you found that the more energy you put into a video that the better it performs? Yes. Really? Yes. So I've almost found an inverse relationship and that's probably why you see me backing off from like forcing too much, you know, of heart and soul into a video. I can't edit for a month like you do. Mm-hmm. It's because some of my best performing videos are like, it, 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 I got to understand the platform, I guess, because it's like the airplane walk arounds, the house walk around when I was finished with it, me doing a pilot reacts to some idiot jumping out of his airplane for yeah. views on, on YouTube, you know, like those videos are the ones that work really well. And then if I go out and shoot this like, you know, huge adventure and, and make what I think is a, a really good piece of video or film, um, and then it doesn't work. And so it's been an interesting endeavor for me and kind of enlightening in that sense that it doesn't always have to be, you know, top tier production value mm-hmm. to work. It just has to be something that people are interested in. And, you know, and you also, have to be interested in it. Yeah. I think that's an important part. Yeah. Like as the creator or else, even if it is a low key video, like you're probably excited to share your new house that you just built with yeah. or you just built. Yeah. And it's probably not as intensive as editing a seven day airplane adventure yeah you know exactly and unfortunately too i mean it's got to be clickable that's the hardest thing for me to still get over because i just don't like i'm not a a 
a like good self salesman. I'm not someone that's like super sensational. Hey, click on this. This is yeah. cool. But you kind of have to do a little bit on YouTube because unfortunately, if they don't click on your video, they'll never watch your video and you can make the best video in the world. But if no one clicks on it, it doesn't work and they'll never mm-hmm. see it. And the YouTube algorithm too only re- rewards clicks. It's pretty much only click through rating. That is what makes videos perform. Cause like the majority of, uh, views on YouTube come from just recommends. But even if you're subscribed to something, your subscriber feed, if people aren't clicking on that video, it won't even pop up there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, finding a way to have a subject like a title and a thumbnail that is interesting enough to click on, but not oversell your video or be like, you know, clickbaity. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that's, it's a, it's a fun, it's like exciting and it's fun because it's a part of the production process of this whole thing, but it's also challenging. It's also really hard. And I think if you can think of a cool idea, like I always try to think about how are we going to frame this as a title thumbnail? Like before coming into this, I was like, Oh, you know, fly fishing, uh, flying into, to like remote desert stream to fish or yeah. something, you know, I was thinking about that and I was thinking about how we could maybe have a potential thumbnail for that. Oh, you have the plane in the foreground river in the background. Like I always try to think about that before I go into a trip. And cause I always, I want to do stuff that excites me and I'm sure you do too, Yeah. but it's also exciting to like create art with strategy. Yeah. And you can, it, you can think about, you have to kind of think about the concept and the idea of the video and how that might fit into packaging it for people to see versus just maybe you go out and shoot something and you're like, shit, how am I going to, Yeah. how do I, I don't, cause then you, then you run into that issue where you don't want to be too sensational where it's off brand, Yeah. but you want to, um, you still want it to, to draw people in Yeah. in a way. So yeah, figuring out that balance is tough. But again, I think it might go back to, uh, repetition yeah you know trying things trying different types of thumbnails maybe you go a little sensational and then you dial it back maybe the next time to to have it feel a little more like raw and real yeah and that's one thing i think you and i are our thumbnails normally are just like mostly just a nice image Mm -hmm. normally from the video of some you know it's not like we're like doing a whole bunch of photoshop work i've done some um when you kind of need it to kind of help tell the the story of what the people are going to be clicking on, but we don't tend to do the normal YouTube. Like, you know, I got to cut out of me with a, with a, yeah. like, yeah, drop <laughs> shadow like or something around it. Yeah. Something super crazy. I have found that it seems like if I have my face in the thumbnail, it, it performs better, but I could be wrong on that. No, I think, I think that's huge because people recognize mm-hmm. they're scrolling and they might just see a, <clears throat> you know, a shot like one of ours is uh Blue Ridge Parkway road trip and it's just a wide frame cool waterfall with my buddy Paco fishing. It's yeah. a sick thumbnail, but you know, then you think maybe what if my face was in frame? I'm, yeah. you know, people recognize me because I'm the one they're clicking on or whatever. Yeah. So that's just, yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's something to that. Um, again, it feels like conceited to do that, but, <laughs> um, I think that is kind of important because again, they're coming to hang out with us, not just, you know, be entertained. Yeah. yeah it's a, it's a weird dynamic, but there's something else along those lines and I, I spaced what we were talking about. <laughs> flew, flew over your head. Mm-hmm. Classic podcast. Just, things go left and right. Yep. <clears throat> um, oh, what I was going to say is so many of, uh, we, we kind of briefly talked about this in the plane yesterday is that, you know, 
what we're doing is not scripted. It's more of like a documentary style, you know, follow along of what our adventure is. So it's really hard to have a plan of what you're going to make when you don't know what's going to happen. And so a lot of my videos, if I'm going to go fly with my friends in the backcountry, you know, I'm like hoping, okay, it would be awesome if we can do these things and I'll be able to cover that if we do them. But a lot of times things come in the way and it doesn't work. And then it's like, well, the things that got in the way, that's part of the story. So is that entertaining enough? And is that now the title and thumbnail of like, you know, Mm -hmm. when things don't work out and, and all that. So like I was telling you with the Baja trip, we, you know, we took our trucks and drove down the entire Baja Peninsula in Mexico, um, like pretty much the hard way, dirt, most of it all the way down is this big adventure. And I I was super excited and I was like, I definitely should share this. I'm sure there's going to be some things that go wrong. And like nothing went wrong. It was like just clear sailing, perfect. No one even popped a tire. I'm like, there's just no drama. Like what, you know, making these films and it's fun and there's like all that, but I didn't have anything clickable to, to mention. And I just fell short on title and thumbnail. And I think it, obviously it was, it was a little off topic for the aviation thing anyway, but they definitely like kind of flopped. So I'm like, all right, back to flying. (laughs) That's good to experiment. Like it's good to try new things. And again, it's like your core audience is going to watch it. Yeah. And I heard something recently that's like all views are, are not created equal. Yeah. So I think even though maybe the videos didn't perform as well, I think the people that watched it were probably stoked and impacted by it. Even if it wasn't the high number that you're used to, which is crazy. Like I'll, I'll have videos that flop too. And you're like, man, this only has 54,000 views. What, what did I do wrong? Like I should go, I should quit what I'm doing. Yeah. Like, and then you think about 50,000 people. Like yeah. How in the, I could never even envision being in front of 50,000 people. No, like, the town I grew up in had like 14,000 people in it. Yeah. And I think about that a lot. I'm like, I've gotten that many likes on a video. Yeah. And you're like, how, what? Like the direct engagement from that many people. Like it's just, it, you get numb to the numbers and it's, it's crazy how that happens. And like we were talking too, you see growth, you get used to it. And then you look at other creators that have like, geez, ungodly numbers. So you just kind of like, it's just weird, like figuring out, like, I feel like I'm doing good, but am I doing good? And like, am I doing as good as I should be? And am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Like, it's mm. just crazy. The mental game. And that goes back to, you know, feeling like I'm on an Island and I'm yeah. sure the same thing as you and how isolating it is. So have there been points where you've had to subtract things like take the, or maybe like sacrifice things out of your life or out of your business and process to focus in on YouTube? Cause like I, f- I feel like you, we get drawn in so many different directions. Like, Oh, you could do this. You could do that. And the more it grows, the more opportunities you have. And so the harder it is to say no to things but at the same time, like, I feel like the best thing that I can be doing is is working on the films and being a part of that process, facilitating that process. So if I get distracted by, oh, maybe I go take a freelance project or maybe I go work on merch, like the more often I get pulled in those directions, the less I'm actually doing for the channel, with the which is the core thing, the films. Yeah. It's like, was do you feel like there was ever a point where you were doing too much and you had to like take things out always yeah <laughs> yeah and I, i'm really bad at that balance and figuring all that out that's an uh, an evolution that's still going yeah I'm still figuring that out so but it seems like you've got a pretty dialed system like, yeah that's just that's that's I, I appreciate that it doesn't feel that way yeah yeah it, it seems like you way. have a pretty dialed system so it's <laughs> like it's funny how that works it doesn't it doesn't feel like i got it figured out but 
No, I mean, there's certain videos that I know I, 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 I know what I can do and it's easy for me and I feel like I'm good at. Um, it's been tough this year though, just cause this, this winter we were talking about like unprecedented snowpack in the Sierra still right now. And we've had, if it wasn't, I mean, well, I was talking to a buddy that does construction here in Reno. They've had a hundred days that were weather days that they could not work on the construction project. And that was working days. That's like a third of the year that they lost. And I'm like, that's a good example of how gnarly this winter's been. And if you can't work in construction, you definitely can't fly a plane that day. Mm. So to run a aviation based YouTube channel in a, a year that has no flying weather is, is tough. And then also, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this, this thing with the FAA. That's like a three and a half year long ordeal that they're trying to suspend my license for some stupid thing years ago. Um, you know, that, that whole back and forth and it's become super public. It's, it just, it erodes some of, you know, the, the love I have for flying. And so it's been a, a, a weird balance trying to, to get back to the roots of it and, and remember why I love flying and not get too hung up in all the bureaucratic government stuff that's coming with it right now. Mm-hmm. Cause that's not what it's about. And it's, it shouldn't, you know, that's not what flying is. It's just sucks that, you know, I've been put in that position that, put myself in that position I should say yeah so. do you want to talk about that situation and what I mean we can if you want to yeah I mean if you're comfortable with it yeah I mean, it's like something that I was unaware of until you kind of shared some of the information yeah with me. I mean the the short story of it is basically a, a friend of mine had a house just north of here um, and his son as well as him flew RC airplanes and they had an RC strip in their backyard and his son, I hired as a laborer to help me finish my house here. And so he was out here every day with me, helped me paint the whole house, put all the baseboards up, flooring, all the stuff. And he, every day he'd be like, when are you going to come land at my house? When are you going to come land? I know you can do it. Come land at my house. Come land at my house. And so finally one day I was out flying and I'd flown over it. I'd been to his house too. And looking at it from the ground, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I could land here. That looks good. But um, as an off airport pilot, there is a a series of steps that you need to do prior to actually landing somewhere. And actually the FAA has their own ops guide for off airport um, operations. And it, it clearly states that you need to do multiple passes, both high and low to inspect the landing site and make sure it's safe. Um, and so, like I said, I'd seen it from high, uh, I'd been on the ground there. And so one day I was out flying, I was like, let's take a low, you know, look at this thing. And I came in and it was kind of like on short final, I'm looking at it and I'm like, I don't really, I can't see it that well. I mean, you could tell when I was trying to explain where I was going to touch down, where we're rolling out when we're out in the bush, like it's really hard to tell where the intended center line is and all that. So I was coming in on final or what would have been a final again. I wasn't going to land this time. It was just a a look and uh, didn't like it. And so I accelerated to full throttle and I knew there was a lot of houses close by, uh, pulled up and flew away, said not today, not actually just not worth it. And I didn't realize that the neighbor of my friend didn't like him flying the RC planes. He thought that my neighbor or my friend was dive bombing his house with drones. So he had a security camera pointed up in the sky looking for drones, dive bombing them. And so he caught my, my, uh, plane on camera and he submitted video evidence and he was basically recording the screen with his iPhone and panned through it. And so when the FAA called me and they had me come in and talk to them, they showed me the video and what the video was and what I remember doing as a pass were totally like, I saw the video and I'm like, what in the world? I'm like, I am 
fucked. Like I'm so screwed right now. So, um, yeah, I was kind of like, I didn't even know, you know, I had told him like, yes, I, that's me. I was in the plane. I'm not denying anything. I, you know, I had permission to land there. The rule states, except when necessary for takeoff or landing, you have to remain 500 feet from vehicles, vessels, persons, and structures. So when we say, except when necessary for takeoff or landing, um, through this, you know, again, to shorten this very long story, um, what's necessary for takeoff or landing is what the FAA and I disagree on. And it's interesting going back to that FAA ops guide, because I did it based off what the ops guide says. But basically the way that the judge ruled against me in my hearing was that because I didn't land, it wasn't necessary for landing. Um, there's a bunch of problems with that ruling and, and really what it comes down to is the way that the FAA handles these kind of things moving forward. If I don't continue to fight this and appeal it and get it gone, um, anyone else that's in a similar scenario moving forward, the, the judge or the FAA will be able to look up the Palmer versus the administration. And they're going to say, well, this guy didn't land, even though he was an inspecting a landing. And because he didn't land, it wasn't necessary. And we're going to suspend your license. And what that does is, uh, it creates undue pressure for pilots to push it and land, even if they don't feel like it's safe, which is not what the FAA should be doing. Like there should not be regulations that add pressure. It's supposed to be that the pilot in command has the final say in the safety of the flight. And if there is something that is necessary as part of your landing procedure, you can do that to ensure a safe landing or ensure that, you know, maybe it's not, you know, maybe a go around or, or aborting that one is the safe call. So, um, there's some messy wake that I leave behind me in this, which is probably the harder part than just the, like the precedent that it sets. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And also in the judge's ruling, he mentioned, uh, that it wasn't an acceptable landing site because, uh, it was on dirt. There wasn't a windsock. There wasn't runway lighting or any runway markings. Well, that ruling kind of means every off airport landing would be illegal which is not the case that they are legal and they have been since the inception of flying. I mean, you know, airplanes were around before airports were back in the day. That's all they did were off airport landings. Right. So it's just a, a really dangerous pe- precedent set on a couple bounds. Um, unfortunately, like the hearing's done, like uh, me arguing my side of the story is it, it's neither here nor there. So it doesn't really matter what happened that day anymore. What, ha- what matters is the lack of due process in my hearing and them ruling on uh, allegations that weren't ever alleged against me. So this whole, it wasn't an acceptable landing site. They never said that in their case against me. I didn't have a chance to defend myself on that. Um, them saying, well, the, the acceptability, that, that was the other thing that really, that got thrown in as a curveball during the hearing. So we came up with like a, a very fast, like, you know, rapid fire defense to show how it, it was acceptable. Like my plane could land there. No problem. I've landed way shorter than that. And as we're going back and forth on that, there was like someone objected. One of the parties, we went into a side hearing and the FAA attorney's like, well, no, the acceptability of the landing site's not a concern. So she threw that off the table. So basically they, it wasn't alleged against me. They threw it in me on the, in the hearing and then she took it off. And then the judge brought it back at the end and still ruled against me on something that wasn't alleged against me. That's like the definition of prejudice. Like it, could you imagine, let's say, 
let's say someone got, whether innocent or guilty, was in a, a trial for, for breaking and entering someone's house. And then during the hearing, the, 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 um, the, what, the defendant or no, the opposite side. Yeah. The, <laughs> did I do well in law and business law class yeah. back in the day? Uh, yeah, I know what you mean though. Yeah. Like the judge or whoever is like filing the charge. Yeah. The person filing the charges, their attorney basically says, well, and also he assaulted my, my client. And then throws that on the table. And then the the person that's defending, you know, being defended by their attorney or is the defendant's going to be like, wait, no, what? what? That's that's not even what this is about. How are you? You know, that would never fly. Mm-hmm. And then imagine then if the, um, the again, the other attorney is like, actually, you're right. Yeah, that we're not worried about that. And then the judge at the end is like, actually, I think it is about that. And I'm going to rule against him on that. Like, that is not how due process works. You know, this we're innocent until proven guilty. We're supposed to be given a fair and, and free trial that's heard fairly. And that was far from what happened. And it sucks because like, I honestly think the FAA is, is a, a really a great agency when it comes to that kind of stuff. Like they are the reason that aviation is as safe as it is. And we still have the least amount of regulations of anywhere in the world. So I hate to be like someone that's anti FAA and I'm not, it's just uh, the way I was handled in this case is really like, disappointing i guess leaves a sour taste yes. kind of deal. yeah so you're still kind of waiting on the, on the yeah. final ruling yeah so basically how it works um the faa handles all their own legal cases so uh there once the complaint was made it went to an faa in, inspector or investigator and the guy that did my case wasn't even an ops guy he's an airframe guy which was strange but he had a personal interest in me so he made sure he was on it which already is concerning but <laughs> then he built his whole investigation, sends it off to an FAA attorney that there are all these guys are on the FAA payroll. The FAA attorney like comes up with the, their sentencing on me. They send it to me and I say, no, that's not right. You know, I'm not guilty. So then we go into the hearing and the hearings me versus them. Um, it's overseen by an administrative law judge. So he's not like he's with the NTSB, the NTSB and the FAA are one and the same. Like the FAA is a part of the NTSB. So it's like three on the same team and then me. And then they even brought in this expert witness, which he wasn't there. He's not a witness and he's on the FAA's payroll. So he works for the FAA. He's supposed to have high experience, but he's never been in a Kip Fox. He has no idea who I am. He does no idea of the aircraft performance and he has no off airport experience. So how he's a witness, I don't know. But he basically came in, was their witness. They just like, they just line everything up to just rule against you. And there's no, you don't have any chance. Yeah. So, so basically we knew we were, well, they didn't have any evidence. So we felt pretty good during the hearing that, you know, they would drop the charges, but he ruled against me anyway. So we filed a, an appeal. So basically the appeal says, Hey, the judge erred in his, his ruling based on these, you know, things. And they took a long time to get back to us, but that's what they just came back with and said, no, uh, we're going to deny your appeal in its entirety. But then the FAA last second filed an appeal as well that they didn't like that the judge had lowered my f- suspension from 120 days to 60. So uh, then they agreed on the FAA's appeal and upped my suspension back up to 120. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And so now we filed a motion to reconsider the appeal. I don't think it's going to, I mean, again, it's there. 
these guys all they all go to the same Christmas parties. They go golfing together. They're all on the same team. They're buddies. Yes. Like there's unfortunately um, this part of their system is broken. It doesn't work. So after this, we're finally at the point where we can reach out to the U.S. Court of Appeals, which would be the ninth Court of Appeals. I think is here in Nevada, is where we would be doing that. Not that's outside of the, the FAA. FAA. This is this is the point where we say, hey, whoa, a government agency did not do their job right, and here's why. And so again, now it's all based on um, the ruling side of things. It's, it has nothing to do with what happened the day of. Now we're just talking about uh, lack of due process. Yeah. And it sucks. It's been stressful. It's been expensive. It's been time consuming. It's sure, been like draining. mentally, it's just like everything. Yeah, anxiety inducing, and just not something that want <clears throat> you want to be in the back of your your mind. No. Um, well, I hope it all, you know, makes its way through the process, <laughs> and hopefully, yeah, I'll I'll be fine either way. I, like I said, the my big concern is the wake I'd leave behind me with the the legal precedents. Yeah. And I would hate to erode any of the freedoms that I'm so proud that we all have and that I've been, you know, promoting and sharing and trying to share my love of flight. And part of that is is what we're able to do with these freedoms. And if I erode those, it's like, what am I doing? Yeah. It's it's opposite of what I've been trying to do here. So, yeah. Gosh, man, that's that's a bummer. Um, but I, I was thinking, too, before before you went into that, when you're talking, I didn't realize that because like if they would have taken your suspension through the winter, you'd been like, all right. I don't, I can't really fly anyways, dude. I know. And, and so in hindsight, yeah, if I could have just before going to the hearing, if I would have just said guilty, just accept it. Um, then there wouldn't have been the precedent set. And in hindsight, I wish I would have done that. But again, at the start, they were asking for seven months. It was 210 day suspension, which was completely outlandish for a low flying complaint. That's never even, there was no, none on record that we could find at that high of level. Yeah. So we just were like, well, they'll definitely drop it. We might as well fight it. And I just didn't, you know, and again, my attorney didn't either. This is, this is not, we, no one saw this coming. Yeah. But yeah, in hindsight, I should have just said, okay. And I could have still flown. I would have just had to have someone in my plane that was also a pilot. So like Jerry, he, he's got his pilots rating. Let's go shoot a video. Jerry, you're coming with me. Mm-hmm. And I can manipulate the controls. I can fly. I just can't be the pilot in command of the flight. So got it. my pilot's license would not be the one effectively controlling the flight his would but yeah. so it really wouldn't have stopped me from much it, it would have done very little and like you said yeah winter just make some other content and mm-hmm. you know talk about flying it doesn't have to be flying like i would have been fine it just sucks that it's just turned into such a, a big ordeal <laughs> yeah dude oh yeah gosh the gov- working with a government agency is just i got it's got to be the worst and um yeah but i was thinking about your content in terms of almost similar to like a skiing channel or a uh, mountain biking channel because these are seasonal sports, right? Like skiing happens for X amount of months. So during those months, you're stoked on skiing. This is like my personal experience. You know, I start watching ski videos around October, November when snow starts falling, getting stoked. And then by, you know, April, I'm like, all in on fishing and mountain biking and like ready for summer to happen. So I wonder if like some of your flying, because maybe you weren't able to fly as much, you know, it's like your flying season is for your core flying season is for X amount of months. Yeah. And then you have like a little winter break where maybe you make some different content, but maybe just like some of your viewers kind of are into other stuff for that time frame, yeah. which could be part of it. Um, cause I, I'm like not watching skiing videos in the summer, no. you know? 
and yeah, I don't and think so, many people are putting skiing videos out in the summer either. Yeah. I mean, I guess if I had my say in things, like if I, if I could define what I want my channel to be, it would be kind of like an aviation lifestyle channel. Like it should be a lifestyle channel with aviation being one of my, my, you know, like the core interests. Of it. Yeah. yeah. And so I think hopefully having the hangar that is one of the projects you, you saw that I'm working on here is the end goal of this property has always been to be able to keep the plane here and fly from the house instead of going to the airport. Um, I'm hoping that that will allow the transition to more lifestyle sh stuff uh, more kind of organically, right? So even if we're not flying, maybe we're, you know, basing in the hangar and starting from there, or if I'm shooting a podcast or any other little shenanigan things like airplanes in the background, you know, it's like, it's a familiar place. It's a familiar scene. And, and it still feels like, you know, part of flying. And we were talking about this too, or aviation is like hangar flying. When we go and hang out in someone's hangar and just talk airplanes, like yeah. we all love that. It's like, like fish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Same thing. And so being able to do some of that and then, you know, I don't care what kind of pilot you are. It's not your only interest. Come on. Like we're all into sure. all of us as humans. We should have multiple interests and be into exploring this awesome world and all these different things that you can be into. And so I, I can't imagine that that's the only thing. And I know, I mean, historically, actually looking at my channel, I've had a lot of videos that were off aviation topic do great. Mm -hmm. So it's just figuring out how to, to do more of those without, um, forgetting about my core audience that cares about flying. Yeah. You know, um, I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick. Yeah. Of course. I'm surprised you made it this long, man. Dude, I know. And I've had three, three coffees. You got to tell the people about my small bladder. <laughs> Your deepest, darkest secret <laughs> has now been exposed. That's the title of this, this whole podcast. Scotty's big secret. Scotty pieces pants in the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you didn't have a problem with that. I was expecting No, I, I was I was proud of myself. We Even that hour and whatever hour and a half flight hour 20 flight to fall river wasn't bad but that is a that is a weakness of mine i have small bladder and i was very conservative about my coffee intake before flying each morning yeah um yeah we did all right i was worried um the flight home yesterday from fall river because we were leaving late right because we got hung up fishing and stayed yeah. there later than we should have and then we were you know chatting with jay a little longer than we should have at the air like all of it that's just how life works but we were kind of racing daylight to get back here um my only fear is putting us over like remote terrain at in the dark you know i guess in as long as we got to susanville which was kind of the halfway point we could have just followed the highway and as long as we're over lights i, I know i'm not going to hit a mountain Mm -hmm. it's when you have just dark in front of you that you could run into <clears throat> terrain you don't see but um I, I guess i was worried you'd have to pee then and we'd have to stop at like susanville or somewhere the the day before that just going out in the desert that's easy just land on a a dirt road or the out in the open desert somewhere let you take a yeah. leak yeah it was good i got a little queasy on some of the flights some of the bumpier ones but i think that's just comes with i've just always been a little more immune to motion sickness i guess um or not i don't know immune, not immune sorry. not immune vulnerable <laughs> we'll say vulnerable vulnerable yeah. yeah have you have you been in any situations that were dangerous or scary in the plane yeah i'd love to hear like what well is there anything so i am not as weathered as many pilots that i hang out with so my stories are not that gnarly i did have the engine quit which i think i told you about um was flying home from outside of Boise, Idaho to Reno 
Uh, it's about as remote of an area as you can get in the lower 48. When you like look at the dot on the map where my engine quit, it's like it's far from services. There was no radio contact with like any sort of, you know, control center or anything. I think I just had my radio turned off on that flight because I used to get like some interference from something. Like my phone would make it do weird noises on my old avionics. So probably had the radio turned off. I was coming over a mountain range. It was like a desert range like this and uh, probably 500 feet above the ground. And I heard like a little buzzing noise and I had music playing in my headset and I was like, is that my music or is the engine? And so I pulled the throttle back a little bit and it was just like clank, like the prop stopped so violently. It like shook the plane when it stopped. I'm like, whoa, I'm not restarting that one. (laughs) And um, it was wild. So I, you know, I've practiced engine outs a bunch. We normally do that just by pulling it to idle and you like glide it down and land somewhere. But I've actually turned off the engine like a long time ago. I was going to shoot a video about what happens when the engine quits. And so like when I was playing around shooting that video, I like turned off, turned it off and threw the keys in the back. So I had to land. And so I've done that. Like I I know how to fly my plane. I've landed off airport. Like I had every tool in my belt for this situation. But that said, when it happened and like the heat was on, like there was a minute that I like felt like I was going to faint. Like all the, like just adrenaline and all that. I was like, whoa. And I'm like, I, I told you, I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, this is what it feels like before you wreck your plane. I'm like, is this what it feels like before you die? And like, just the stuff that went through my head for that minute, it, it shook me more than I thought it would. So that was probably the, the diciest one. But you just um, followed procedure, you stayed calm and you found a patch. Yeah, I, I basically, I saw a little two track road and I was like, I can make that. It was close. It was not like I did. I wasn't about to try to stretch the glide. That that's what kills people is when they try to pull their plane too far. They get it too slow and stall stall it into the ground. Basically, take the plane from flying to stall it, and then the nose drops, and you're just a lawn dart. So, I knew not to try to stretch my glide. I saw somewhere. I'm like, I'm going there. And then as I was going there, I looked and saw somewhere else, and I was like, Ooh. But that's another thing that kills people is changing their mind. Like once you have a spot picked, you just go with it. Um, so I had, a, I had a tailwind and I was, you know, at this point I'm going down descending or lowering terrain. So I had to slip the plane really hard. I did that on our, our, our landing at Fall River. So basically when you kick the tail of the plane out, put it out of coordination, I'm basically pushing really hard rudder and it feels all uncomfortable because the plane's flying sideways, but it uses the whole side of the plane to create drag so you can descend really quickly without gaining airspeed. It's like hitting the brakes. Um, so I had to slip super hard. I landed super fast. <laughs> like it was, I, f- I think I had to like get rid of flaps and push the plane onto the ground and then use brakes to stop myself. And I, it, I don't know how I didn't overrun and go into the sagebrush. I, I, I don't know. I guess it was just some dumb luck and having the right skill set at the time, but Dude. yeah. And then I was like, all right, get my stuff together. I, I, I kind of figured, I think I was like 10 miles from a highway. So I grabbed my water bottle. I had a little spot locator, like a, a GPS SOS thing. Um, and I pushed the helping hands thing on that, which basically it doesn't send out to emergency crews. It sends to like the list I had, which was Haley. And then a bunch of my flying buddies like, Hey, non-life threatening emergencies come up, please send help. And of course, Haley, my wife took it as like, he hasn't died yet, but he's dying. <laughs> like, so she's freaking babbling, Brooke, crying, <laughs> freaking out. And I knew she was just by pushing that. So um, grabbed the water bottle, had my vlog camera. Like I wasn't filming when I was flying cause yeah. I was just flying cross country home from a trip up in Idaho. Like, yes. Yeah. Video was done, but, uh, picked up that camera and set on what I thought was going to be a really long hike. And I walked, I mean, less than a mile. It was probably half a mile 
to the edge of this little hill I was on and I looked down and there's like a little reservoir and a whole bunch of campers around it. It's like, no way. And so <laughs> went down there, found someone that had a phone, called Haley. She was crying, told her, hey, I'm not dying. I'm fine. Plane's fine. Just the engine's not. You know, it's going to be a bit before we can afford a new one of those. And uh, then I called the owner of Kit Fox, who's a, f- a good friend of mine. And he was flight instructing with someone at the time. And uh, he answered and he's like, what happened? The engine quit. He's like, all right, well, I'm going to finish instructing and I'll get a trailer and I'll come get you. <laughs> so, so I hung out with these guys that were fishing up there. And then I ended up running into a friend from Reno that I'm pretty good friends with. And he's up there. He's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I crash landed up in the hill. What are you doing here? He's like, we're fishing. Grab a beer. You need one. I'm like, I do. And so just cracked a beer and hung out. It was uh, not the survival uh, scenario that I thought I might have been in when an engine quit. So all oh things gosh. considered, it, it worked out really well. Scared me, though. And I've changed the way I fly because of that. Because I, I had this false sense of confidence in my engine. And now I've got this... Um, permanent apprehension towards engines even though like mine is the is you know it's only a couple years old it's one of the most advanced you know high-tech reliable engines you're going to get and i still have this level of distrust in it so Mm -hmm. yeah once it happens and it's real you're like this could happen at any point which is one of the things i noticed that you had mentioned this trip is when you are flying you're always looking for an out no matter what just where if that situation happens or something bad happens with the plane how can i get out of this situation that's got to be a little stressful right to yeah to constantly have on your on your in the back of your head yeah yeah flying if i mean flying it's like it, i don't take it lightly and i know others probably do a little bit more than me and that's probably one thing that i don't think translates through my youtube and part of that's intentional i don't like the red tape and the severity that comes with flying i don't i don't think that's what is fun to share What's fun to share is like the super fun, like experiences and and the views and and the freedom you get through it. Um, So I don't share as much of that. And I think a lot of people probably would be surprised at how much I, I like stress things, Mm. but it's, you know, it comes from experience and it comes from like a necessity and like, you know, uh, uh, the importance of safety that would require that you're on top of things. So like a lot of the time, like we were, when we we're cruising, yeah, if I'm up high and all that, like, yeah, most of the time you don't have to think about a lot, but you do need to be on top of things. So it's easier than driving down a freeway in the sense that I don't have a line three feet on each side of my truck and oncoming traffic that might be distracted that you need to be ready to evade. Mm. Like there's nothing to hit up there. So on good days, you're just flying along, but you still have to watch, you know, your engine. You got to make sure that you, you know, you're not flying and breaking into the wrong airspace and then you know ha- be ready for an emergency should there be one because unfortunately you can't just like pull over to the side of the road like you can in a car yeah when there's a problem like things get real fast totally Dude, yeah. i mean i'm it's it's really a cool tool like to have not only is it a cool and exciting thing to do a flying but it was really cool coming kind of merging our worlds now of like the fly fishing and the and the flying to then use the plane as a tool to one scout and then to get to different areas and i'm even this week you know you're talking about oh my gosh like i'm so excited now that it's warm all these different places i need to go check out yeah what are what do you think you're most excited about going into this summer with like fishing and with the youtube channel and flying like what's, what's kind of got you stoked? Dude, Idaho. So that's what I got the fly rod for was an Idaho trip. And I used to go to Idaho every year without failure. And then last year, I don't know, 
I think it's because I did that Wyoming fishing trip that we, we as, was a ground-based mis- mission. And so I kind of missed my window to go up to Idaho. So I, I really need to make that happen and bring a fly rod and go explore some water that I, I, most of that stuff I couldn't imagine sees that many flies. I know, I, but I'm not the only dude that has a backcountry aircraft that goes back there and fishes. Like, there's probably going to be a bunch of them that if I make a video of that are just going to be cussing at me because like, dude, no, my secret <laughs> spot. Why would you? Ugh, but not this YouTuber. Oh, I <laughs> get a, burning. I get a lot of that, and <laughs> I get it. But you know, it's an unfortunate thing that aviation has been on the decline for decades. Like back when our parents were young, like planes were affordable. And it was easy to get your pilot's license, and everyone like was was into it. And Top it's like, Gun was out. Like yeah, people were stoked. And, and companies like Cessna and Piper were building planes like crazy. They were just pumping them out, and again, they were affordable. They were able to take advantage of economies of scale because there were so many people flying. And then you know, just over the years, uh, aviation has has lost its its uh, I don't know its edge or whatever it was that got people into it. So. Um, airplane companies aren't able to make as many airplanes. And so the cost of each part goes up because they can't take advantage of those economies of scale. So the more costs go up, the more it becomes cost prohibitive to people to get into, um, the less people fly. And it's just a vicious circle. So people that are into aviation that, um, you know, feel like someone like me is kind of ruining it because I'm getting more people into it, they got to understand that that's the opposite of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say that we're power in numbers. There's plenty of room in the sky for all of us. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of room in the backcountry for all of us. As long as we're all responsible and sensible, it can all be done and it can all be done well. It's been done in the past. All those guys were back there back in the day. So yeah. I'm definitely not trying to ruin this like secret thing for people. Yeah. It's the same with fishing. You know, you're doing the same thing. Like, again, it's funny that people feel like, I'm sure you've heard people that get upset that we do catch and release. You know, like why you got to go torture the fish and you don't even care about fish if you're doing that to them. And you're like, well, you realize that it's our fishing licenses that fund all the rehabilitation efforts or a good portion of them. And, and the and, and what keep these habitats for the fish healthy and, mm-hmm. and viable are the populations, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a weird dichotomy there. Same with hunters. Like hunters are the reason that there's so much protection for lands and, and animals out there. And there's sometimes hunters are the people who care the most about the animals. Yes. And I, I think that sometimes gets mixed or like people don't, don't see that. Yeah. Cause I think you might just see, you know, this is a bad example, but maybe like a, you know, someone shoots somebody or in the news or like there's another school shooting. Like that's what people are associating guns with. And then they're like, Oh, hunters are these bad people like they associate guns uh, right away to like a hunter. Yeah. And I think maybe it's, maybe it's similar in the flying world that like the news and social media is just so geared towards showing these like crazy, maybe more negative stories. That's just what more people click on. So I wonder if there's just more access to more of those stories now that people are a little scared off about flying because they're like, oh, there's this plane that crashed and this plane that crashed. So then that means I'm going to crash. And there's less of like the stuff that you're trying to make, which is like, no, if you, you can have a great time if you're smart about it and you you follow all the procedures and you do all these steps and you're like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I feel like I feel like that's what you're trying to accomplish. But maybe sometimes people see the negatives too much. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, unfortunately, there's built-in biases with certain people that they just see the bad in things. And yeah. I feel bad for them. 
Like, dude, like, I'm sure you've had some haters. Like, I, we're super fortunate. Like, I've, I've looked through some of your comments and then mine, like, overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. So I can't even talk, really, like, when it comes to having, like, haters or, yeah, or mean yeah. people commenting. But And those those uh, aren't your audience. Those are just random people that are stumbling on your video, yeah. probably. And it's funny, though, when I read them, like, it, it, I, I understand the negativity bias that they say, like, one bad comment's worth ten good comments. Like, that's how much more it hits. But I just, like... Most of them I read into and I'm like, man, I feel bad for you. Like to be in a place where you feel like you're going to say something like that, like publicly to someone you don't even know. Mm-hmm. Like I can't even imagine where I'd have to be headspace wise to feel like that's okay. So like I have sympathy for him. Like, dude, you got to be in a really bad spot. Like to feel that crappy that totally. you got to just take it out on someone like that. So I sympathize. Yeah. And that kind of stuff. I think so much of it's like your insecurities too. Like there's been times in the past where I've responded to comments and kind of a knee jerk reaction, like trying to get back at them. Oh, we all have. And then over time you realize you're like exactly what you're saying. You know, this person probably, if you ran into them in public, they wouldn't say a word. They'd probably be like, Oh, Hey man, like, you know, cool videos, but like they have all the power in the world. And as my mom always told me when I was younger, don't give bullies attention. Yeah. So there you go, kids. <laughs> it's so hard, though. You're right, because we're going back to it. We're regular people. We have bad days, too. Yeah. And you have a bad day, and you get a bad comment. It's oh, like it makes it even worse. To yeah. not. And I, I had one that Haley read it, and that's what killed me. Some guy was like, I will bet anyone on this platform like $10,000 that Trent will be dead in the next two years from dying in an airplane crash. Damn. And, yeah, I, I responded to that one. I was like, dude. I don't care who you are or what you do. I'm like, who bets against someone? Like, I have plenty of friends that wingsuit base jump where they jump off cliffs and fly the little squirrel suits down in between cliffs. And, like, you know, I know what the mortality rate is of that. Like, a lot of my friends, like, they lose multiple friends a year. I'm like, but it's, I would never bet against them. I'm like, even if it's not something I'm into, you know, I still support, like, who are you? What? Like, dude, and my wife read that. And mm-hmm. so I, like, laid into this guy and, and he replied, he said, sorry, I'm a, I'm a jerk sometimes. And then he deleted his comment. And I was like, Classic. dude, whoa, Classic. <laughs> that never works. Normally a layback, but I was kind of just like, dude, ouch. I didn't, it wasn't like I fought back. I was just like, yeah. who, uh, how could you like, don't bet against my life. Yeah. Yeah. But also I proved him wrong. Yeah. I'm still here. Cause that was over <laughs> two years ago. So. Two years later. I'm here, baby. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that's awesome. Well, <clears throat> um, dude, I really appreciate you having me out here. This has been a blast the last couple of days and I know we've talked about doing some more trips together, which I'm excited about. And we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Some bigger trips, hopefully some overnighters in the yes. back country. And, um, yeah, you're for everyone who's listening or watching, definitely go check out Trent's channel. You've got a couple videos out from the trip that we're on. Yep. That'll go out before my videos, most likely just production schedule wise. So go over there. We'll have everything linked down below. Um, yeah, dude, this has been sick. Yeah. Again, like appreciate you let me stay here and um shout out to Haley for feeding us. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Haley is the unsung hero of everything I do. So yes, thank you, Haley. <laughs> dude, you get you're welcome anytime. Honestly, doors open and passenger seat open anytime. So dude. We'll yeah. do more of this. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Um yeah, and before we leave again, guys, we're doing our we just released our merch drop and all of you who order at least uh fifty dollars worth of gear in, in the first week, you're gonna have a chance to come to Alaska, hang out with Dr. Bob, fly in a bush plane like we've been just talking about. We're gonna go fly around in Alaska. It's like September is one of the best times to be in Alaska. Chances at like up to thirty inch 
rainbow trout, huge silver salmon. It's going to be mind blowing. I can't believe that I get to go back. Um, so one of you guys are going to be coming with us and all that is going to be linked below if you want to check out the new gear and yeah, that's going to do it. Awesome. Sweet dude. Well, until next time. (laughs) See you guys.